Hello, everyone. You are listening to Speak Out Now's March Town Hall on the war in Ukraine. Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine is devastating the country, bombing hospitals, schools, apartment buildings, houses, and more. Civilian death tolls are estimated to be in the thousands, and over two million Ukrainians have fled to neighboring countries. We must oppose Russia's brutal and totally unjustified attack on Ukraine. We must also oppose the aggressive goal of the U.S. and NATO to dominate the region, which helped to provoke Russia's attack. The Ukrainian people are being used as pawns in the struggle between these major powers. In cities across Russia, people are facing the brutality of the police as they say no to this war. And people around the world are beginning to show their opposition as well. We in the U.S. have an obligation to join this opposition and declare our support for the right of the Ukrainian people to determine their future. So in a moment, you'll hear from a member of Speak Out Now sharing a historical context and analysis of what's happening now and discuss what we can do about it. If you'd like to get more involved, please check out speakoutsocialists.org. We have a tab on our website called Resources that have a No War in Ukraine packet with resources to share with others and to read yourself. And if you would like to contact us, please reach out using our website to figure out how you can get involved. We would love to have you join us. With that, we'll hear from our speaker. So before I start, I just want to sort of say again, you know, we're not we're not experts on this conflict. We certainly are not the ones facing these atrocities, fleeing bombs and losing our loved ones. But the purpose of tonight is simply to provide some context so we can have a discussion and come away with a better understanding. And hopefully uh, we'll be able to more clearly see how this war implicates all of us, whether we like it or not, and find a role we can uh, play in opposing it. And so for, for over three weeks now, we've witnessed Russia's attempt to annihilate Ukraine. Hundreds of Ukrainians are dying every day. Russian forces are targeting cities, hospitals, bridges, power plants, schools, residential buildings, all with the clear intention of depriving Ukrainians of food, water, electricity, heat, and medicine. And soon hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians will face starvation amid freezing temperatures if they haven't already. In towns and villages patrolled by Russian soldiers, civilians are being kidnapped and shot down. Already over 3 million Ukrainians have fled the country as refugees, but millions more are trapped as conditions continue to worsen. Here's just one glimpse from the town of Mariupol from a statement by the International Committee of the Red Cross who's been operating in that city. Uh, they say, quote, people of all ages, including our staff, are sheltering in unheated freezing basements, risking their lives to make short runs outside for food and water. Dead bodies of civilians remain trapped under the rubble or are lying in the open where they fell. Hundreds of thousands of the city's residents are now facing extreme or total shortages of basic necessities like food, water, and medicine. The human suffering is simply immense. And it's also important to mention the resilience of Ukrainians, millions who have vowed to stay behind and fight Russia's decimation of their country. Many have listed in the Ukrainian army Many others have formed local militias and have prepared to attack Russian soldiers as they enter their cities. Many have chosen to risk their lives to try to help more fellow civilians out of the country to safety and get needed supplies in. 
we're seeing the mobilization of ordinary Ukrainians to do whatever it is in their power to push back against Russia's clear attempt to destroy their country. Russia has one of the largest militaries in the world and outguns Ukraine in every category by enormous magnitudes and continues to escalate its attacks each day. It seems intent to continue this aggression and seize as much of the country as it can and try to overthrow the Ukrainian government. Often here in this country, the horrors of war and occupation are shielded from us because United States imperialism is the one carrying out the atrocities on a population that has been deemed less human. But this time, since it is Russian imperialism that is carrying out a war of destruction and occupation, we've been able to get a glimpse, a better glimpse of what this destruction really looks like. This is not because those in power in the United States and NATO countries care about the Ukrainian people. It's because they want us to line up behind their policies and support them in whatever actions they carry out. They want us to agree to pay our own price through increased military spending, rising gas prices, and other essentials, and whatever else they have in store. Let's hope this horrific war on the people of Ukraine and their determined resistance can become a wake-up call for millions around the world about the true nature of the system that threatens all of us. So, now, Ukrainians fight for independence is not new. The history of Ukraine is a long history of struggle against one imperialist power or another. Before Ukraine officially declared its independence in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were several key periods where Ukraine was caught in the grips of various competing powers. To understand the situation of Ukraine today, we have to understand some background about the Russian Revolution. Before the Russian Revolution of 1917, for a few centuries, Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire of the Tsars. Tsarist rule was maintained through a policy of brutal domination and oppression over the many different groups and nationalities trapped within the empire, like a prison. This is why Lenin, a Russian revolutionary, referred to the Russian Empire as the prison house of people. But in 1917, the workers and peasants of Russia rose up and overthrew the Tsar, broke up the massive estates of the landowners, and took over the industries. This was a democratic mass movement from below, and it was an inspiration for working people all around the world. The Bolshevik Party led the revolution, and they had a majority of support in the Soviets, which means councils. These were mass democratic organs of power that created by the workers and peasants, and they became the basis for a new type of state. And the Bolsheviks policy, one of their policies was to guarantee the right of self-determination for all nations. They saw the revolution as a way to unlock the prison, that is to free all the various nationalities under the domination of the Russian empire that was now overthrown. They encouraged the people of the different territories to rise up and overthrow their own local ruling classes and choose their own fate. They could choose for themselves whether to join with the newly formed Russian worker state or not. In 1917, Ukraine was well on its way to doing just that. But quickly, the Russian Revolution was strangled by the imperialism of Europe and the United States, and Russia was invaded by 14 countries. And this launched three years of a bloody civil war. The imperialists gave their full support to the counter-revolutionary army, and fought to overthrow the revolution and put the country back under the control of the Tsar's old generals. And by the end of the Civil War, 
Though the counter-revolution was defeated, there were enormous deaths and the revolutionary forces were exhausted. A situation of desperate poverty was rampant, and for many people, their only concern was for their own survival. During the Civil War, the soldiers no longer actively functioned, and in their place, I'm sorry, during the Civil War, the Soviets no longer actually actively functioned, and in their place was uh, a centralized bureaucracy that started to grow. And after the Civil War, this bureaucracy eventually took over control of the whole state apparatus. There were tens of thousands of dedicated revolutionary workers and peasants that resisted this bureaucratic takeover and fought to maintain the perspective and the goals of the revolution. This was known as the left opposition, and it was led by Leon Trotsky, a leader of the Russian Revolution who was born in central Ukraine. But their efforts to oppose the bureaucracy were ultimately not successful, and many were killed or imprisoned or forced underground. And so a few years after the Civil War, the centralized bureaucracy was able to firmly take power with Joseph Stalin at the head. Stalin was a longtime Bolshevik, but by then he had abandoned any prospects for international revolution and replaced those with renewed Russian nationalism, captured in his phrase, to build socialism in one country. He blatantly opposed the Bolsheviks' policy of the right of nations to self-determination. And now at the head of this bureaucracy, Stalin carried out brutal policies of imprisonment, deportation, assassinations, and relocations in various forms of government land seizures across the new Soviet territories. Ukraine was a major battleground during the Civil War, and afterwards Ukraine's hopes for independence were dashed under Stalin's regime. From 1932 to 1933, Stalin sent Soviet troops into Ukraine and across Russia, and they seized agricultural lands at gunpoint through a policy of forced collectivization. This led to a massive destruction of crops and livestock by the peasants. Um, in response, the peasants' food was confiscated and many were killed or exiled if they resisted. Millions of people died across the Soviet Union from starvation, including an estimated uh, 5 million Ukrainians. In Ukraine, this horrific, horrific period of genocide is known as uh, Holodomor. Stalin then forced Russian speakers from Russia to repopulate the Ukrainian areas that had been devastated. And this is most numerously in, the, in Eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass region. Um, this is the main reason the East of Ukraine has a higher Russian speaking and Russian identified population than Western Ukraine. Also in 1944, there was a similar policy that was carried out in Crimea where indigenous Tartars were deported and the areas re repopulated with ethnic Russians. And then during World War II, this time it was German imperialism under the Nazis that set its sights on Ukraine. And about 3.5 million Ukrainians, 1.5 million of whom were Jews, were killed during Nazi occupation. In addition, about 3 million Ukrainians died during the, the, the war fighting to defeat Nazis and bring down German fascism. The end of World War II brought a new standoff between rival powers in the world with the Soviet Union and its allies on one side and the United States and its allies on the other in what is known as the Cold War. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was formed in 1949 as a military alliance between the US, Canada and several European countries prepared to attack the Soviet Union if any of their member states were threatened. And so for the next four decades of the Cold War, there were two rival camps 
bitterly divided and on the brink of nuclear war. If this standoff had ever come to war, none of us would probably be here today. And so at the end of 1991, the Soviet Union was formally dissolved and Ukraine and other nations finally got their independence. So in Ukraine's vote for independence, 84% of the population participated and overwhelmingly more than 92% voted for independence from the Soviet Union. Every single region had a majority in favor of independence. The lowest majority was 54% and that was in Crimea. And in the majority Russian speaking areas of the Donbass, over 83% voted in favor of independence. And in 1994, as part of an effort to remove and destroy former uh, Soviet nuclear warheads that were still stationed in Ukraine, the, the United States, Russia, and the UK signed the Budapest Memorandum, which recognized the independent status and borders of Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine, which included Crimea. And this memorandum was to assure the territory and sovereignty of these three newly recognized nations. They would agree not to intervene militarily or use economic coercion to influence the politics of those countries. And obviously they violated that memorandum. Uh, the first decades of Ukrainian independence in the 1990s was very difficult economically. Ukraine quickly came under the enormous economic pressure of the United States and eventually also of the European capitalists with billions of dollars given in loans to Ukraine over the next several years. And at the same time, the country was ruled by corrupt officials and oligarchs who only cared about enriching themselves. Since 2000, the economic situation of Ukraine hasn't changed much. It's remained saddled with the repayment of loans to the IMF International Monetary Fund and various European and US banks. Ukraine remains the poorest country in Europe with their economy still in the hands of corrupt oligarchs. Its debt has swelled to about $129 billion today, which is almost about 80% of the value of its entire yearly economy. But what does change during this period is the political leadership in Russia. Putin came to power in 2000 with the resignation of Boris Yeltsin and has been in power ever since, relying on coercion, corruption, fraudulent elections, and rewriting the constitution to extend his term. Putin comes from the former KGB, which was the Soviet brutal secret police. And using that secret police apparatus, Putin's been able to control the government and to centralize power in his own hands. He's put down any internal challenges to his power with threats, imprisonment, assassination. Nearly every year since Putin came to power, there have been assassinations of journalists and others who've criticized Putin's regime. And since coming to power, a central part of Putin's economic strategy has been to use Russia's plentiful gas and oil resources to build up Russia's state-owned energy sector, which today accounts for about 40% of Russia's federal budget and about 60% uh, of its exports. And so with these enormous energy revenues controlled by the <clears throat> government, Putin's been able to increase Russia's weapons production and build up its military with the goal of both retaking what it claims as lost territory, as well as building up new alliances around the world. Putin is a fierce Russian nationalist who wants to restore Russia to what it was under czarism and under Stalin's rule. When Putin first came to power, he reignited 10 years of war to take over Chechnya, 
killing about 200,000 civilians. And with the economic crisis of 2008, Putin launched an invasion of the country of Georgia, taking about 20% of its territory. And Putin has also later intervened in Belarus and Kazakhstan to support pro-Russian puppet regimes against massive popular uprisings. And so during the 2000s, Ukraine was increasingly led by politicians that were either under the pressure of European and US economic interests or led by corrupt pu puppets like loyal to Putin and Russia. And from 2004 to 2005, there was a popular movement leading to what became known as the Orange Revolution. It began when the Ukrainian population poured into the streets to protest the fraudulent election of the pro-Russian puppet uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who was prime minister from 2002 to 2004. Yanukovych comes from the Russian-dominated area of Eastern Ukraine. And so in addition to being fed up with government corruption, Average Ukrainians were also sick of the promises of economic growth and better living standards that never materialized. Because of the protests and accusations of fraud, there was a second round of elections and Yanukovych lost his bid for president, but he remained prime minister. Instead, Ukrainians elected Viktor Yushchenko as president. He was elected promising economic growth, a break with Russian corruption, and to establish new relations with Europe but he didn't deliver on any of these promises and instead saddled the country with increased debt to Western imperialists. And soon the global 2008 economic crisis only made a bad situation even worse. Unemployment in Ukraine tripled and the economy shrank heavily while poverty worsened. And so with the population now fed up with Yushchenko, the Russian puppet Yanukovych was elected in 2010 as president. You know, this time he tried to paint himself as being independent from Russia, promising to fix the economic situation and to re-engage with Europe. He promised to sign another trade deal with the European Union. This would have increased trade with Europe, relaxed travel restrictions, but also once again increase Ukraine's debt burden to European banks. But in 2013, at the very last minute, Yanukovych refused to sign the deal and instead signed the deal with Russia. And this was the last straw for the Ukrainian population. And it sparked what is known as the Maidan revolt. Tens of thousands of people flooded the streets of Kyiv. The grievances expressed in the protest quickly went far beyond simply ousting Yanukovych. People expressed enormous discontent well, with the economy. Their buying power was worse. Their wages were less. Their pensions were being cut. Many people connected their own economic misery to uh, both Russian corruption, to the economic debt to Europe, and to the corrupt oligarchs hoarding the wealth of Ukraine. Yanukovych tried unsuccessfully to use government forces to break up the protests, but by 2014, he was ousted and fled the country. And so in this enormous protest movement, there were participants of various political tendencies including some individuals and groups supported by the United States and other NATO forces. And also within the protest, there were also some real fascists with racist, extreme, nationalist, anti-Jewish and anti-Muslim ideas. And they were able to play a prominent role in the street fighting because they were one of the more organized sections within the protest movement. But they weren't responsible for the uprising and they certainly didn't lead it. But their participation did help lead to a greater profile for fascist groups 
and help to contribute to the continued growth of far-right networks afterwards. But despite Putin's claims, they have never received popular support and certainly have not played a prominent role in the government. Um, two weeks after Yanukovych's ouster, and in response to this enormous display of independence by the Ukrainian population, Putin launched an invasion to take over the Crimean Peninsula in southern Ukraine. And at the same time, there were pro-Russian nationalists in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine um, who demanded their independence. They received support from Russia in their fight against the Ukrainian military. And in May 2014, Russian troops were sent in and turned the fighting into a long drawn out war. And this war was used by Putin as his pretext for launching the recent invasion, claiming to be protecting two new breakaway states in the Donbass. And so it's important to emphasize that this is a war launched by Russian imperialism to crush the aspirations of the Ukrainian people to have an independent nation. But this war has also laid bare a new period of what we could call inter-imperialist rivalry. You know, a competition for world dominance between the United States and Europe on one side and increasingly China and Russia on the other. In the United States, we've endured an onslaught of propaganda from the media and the Biden administration. They claim they are outraged by the sheer brutality of Putin's invasion and have deep concerns for the Ukrainian people. This is total hypocrisy. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the U.S. has seen itself as the sole superpower and has taken every opportunity to expand its global dominance. It has expanded NATO military forces and bases into Eastern Europe, encircling Russia, including providing nuclear weapon systems in Poland, which is about 100 miles from Russia's border. And for years, the U.S. has flaunted the idea of Ukraine joining NATO and bringing its weapon systems directly to Russia's border. The United States has expanded its vast empire of military bases around the world to 750 in 80 countries and has continuously increased its military spending, doubling it since 1991. And the United States politicians call out Russia for war crimes, for its indiscriminate bombing of schools and hospitals and the use of cluster bombs and white phosphorus weapons. But what were their invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq? Since the horrific um, U.S. war on Vietnam, we've heard U.S. politicians constantly echo the former U.S. General Curtis LeMay's threat to bomb Vietnam back to the Stone Age. They kept saying this about Iraq and Afghanistan. And in Iraq and Afghanistan, the U.S. repeatedly used cluster bombs and white phosphorus, which sticks to the body and burns the skin down to the bone. It blew up hospitals and schools and water treatment facilities. It bombed funerals. All told, these horrific wars of destruction in Iraq and Afghanistan were responsible for the death of over 1 million innocent civilians, along with the displacement of at least 10 million people. And this is, hypocrisy is the same for Europe. Take French President Emmanuel Macron. Who is he to act horrified about Russian imperialism when French imperialism has carried out military interventions in Mali and the Ivory Coast in Africa? Much attention has been paid to the economic sanctions imposed by the United States and European governments, which have hit ordinary Russians very hard, decreasing the value of the ruble by about 40%. But meanwhile, Europe, especially Germany and France, continue to pay about $1 billion per day to Russia to purchase its natural gas and oil. 
At the same time, the U.S. is doing everything in its power to increase its oil and gas extraction and delivery systems to replace Russia as the Europe's main supplier. And so the world has entered a new era of potentially intensified global conflict. You know, rivalry of imperialist powers, what some call the great power competition of a multipolar world between the United States and Europe and on the one hand and Russia and China on the other. And this is a competition to redivide the world into new spheres of influence for new terms in the global arrangement of economic and military domination. It's a competition for resources, for markets, for energy, for control of ports and sea passageways and more, all leading to an increased military presence and the potential for massive military conflict. Russia's war in Ukraine has led to both France and Germany greatly increasing their military spending. China has also vastly increased its military spending, tripling it in the last 10 years. Russia's war in Ukraine has already sent grain and food prices to their highest record levels, putting hundreds of millions at risk of food shortages. And Biden has made promises of increased military spending and increased fossil fuel extraction, recently at the cost of reducing spending on public health. Their race for further domination of fossil fuels just means even greater climate catastrophes. Their system threatens all of Earth's ecosystems and all of humanity. And it's clear what the future of their system has in store for us. Massive wars, not only on defenseless populations, but between imperialist powers armed with nuclear weapons. And so when we face the enormity of the situation in Ukraine and all that's at stake, the challenges we confront in opposing this war can seem overwhelming. You know, so faced with all of this, what do we do? First, we cannot choose sides between their forces of destruction. That is between one imperialism or another. Our choice, is, our choice is not to support Biden, NATO, or Putin's Russia. We must side with the people of Ukraine in their resistance against the Russian invasion. If their sources of weapons come from NATO forces, fine. That's not for us to judge. But we also need to understand the motivation of NATO and the United States. They're not defending the interests of the people of Ukraine. They're defending their goals of controlling the region. They can send weapons, but at the same time, they don't offer to eliminate the nearly $129 billion of debt that the U.S. and its European allies have imposed on Ukraine and will remain whenever Ukraine achieves its sovereignty. We must support the right of nations to self-determination, the right of peoples to determine what kind of government they want and the kind of society they want to live in and not have it dictated by outside forces. This is the same for the people of Russia and the rest of the world, including us in the United States. Our view as revolutionary socialists is that this means the greatest degree of democracy possible. That is, the people who do the work have the right to make the decisions over their lives. And with this conflict, along with the past two years of this pandemic and with the threat of environmental destruction, I think we can be confident that more people will begin to recognize the importance of confronting the forces that are arrayed against us. We do have the power to bring about the changes that are necessary, but it will take a determined effort and organization. And that's what Speak Out stands for. And so I'll just end with this, which is a slogan from a few different Russian socialist and anarchist groups um, opposed to Russia's invasion. No war between nations and no peace between classes. Thank you.
Thanks for tuning in to Speak Out Now's March Town Hall. Just a reminder that our next town hall will be on April 9th with Andreas Malm discussing the climate crisis and capitalism's role in causing such a crisis. So if that's something you're interested in joining live, um, please be sure to check out our website at speakoutsocialists.org on the events page to figure out how you can attend and discuss with us in real time.